Section 28 of A Visit to the Holy Land. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter 14 of A Visit to the Holy Land, Egypt and Italy, Part 2, by Ida L. Pfeiffer. August 19th. At eleven in the forenoon we reached Atfe, and had therefore travelled about one hundred and eighty sea-miles in sixteen hours. Atfe is a very small town, or rather a mere heap of stones. The landing-places were always the scene of my chief troubles. It was seldom that I could find a frank, and was generally obliged to address several of the bystanders before I succeeded in finding one who could speak Italian and give me the information I required. I requested to be taken at once to the Austrian consulate, where this difficulty was usually removed. This was also the case here. The consul immediately sent to inquire how I could best get to Cairo, and offered me a room in his house in the meantime. A ship was soon found, for Atfe is a harbour of some importance. The canal joins the Nile at this place, and as larger vessels are used on the stream itself, all goods are transshipped here so that barks are continually starting for Alexandria and Cairo. In a few hours I was obliged to re-embark, and had only time to provide myself with provisions and a supply of water, and to partake of a sumptuous dinner at the consul's, whose hospitality was doubly grateful to me as I had fasted the previous day. The chief compartment of the cabin had been engaged for me at an expense of one hundred piastres. On embarking, however, I found that this place had been so filled with goods that hardly a vacant space remained for the poor occupant. I at once hastened back to the consulate and complained of the captain, whereupon the consul sent for that worthy and desired him to clear my cabin, and to refrain from annoying me during the voyage if he wished to be paid on our arrival at Cairo. This command was strictly obeyed, and until we reached our destination I was left in undisturbed possession of my berth. At two in the afternoon I once more set sail alone in the company of Arabs and Bedouins. I would counsel any one who can only make this journey to Cairo once in his lifetime to do it at the end of August or the beginning of September. A more lovely picture, and one more peculiar in its character, can scarcely be imagined. In many places the plain is covered as far as the eye can trace by the Nile Sea, it can scarcely be called a river in its immense expanse, and everywhere little islands are seen rising from the waters, covered with villages surrounded by date-palms, and other trees, while in the background the high-masted boats, with their pyramidical sails, are gliding to and fro. Numbers of sheep, goats, and poultry cover the hills, and near the shore the heads of the dark grey buffaloes, which are here found in large herds, peer forth from the water. These creatures are fond of immersing their bodies in the cool flood, where they stand gazing at the passing ships. Here and there little plantations of twenty to thirty trees are seen, which appear, as the ground is completely overflowed, to be growing out of the Nile. The water here is much more muddy and of a darker color than in the canal between Atfe and Alexandria. The sailors pour this water into great iron vessels, and leave it to settle and become clearer. This is, however, of little use, for it remains almost as muddy as the river. Notwithstanding this circumstance, however, this Nile water is not at all prejudicial to health. On the contrary, the inhabitants of the valley assert that they possess the best and wholesomest water in the world. The Franks are accustomed, as I have already stated, to take filtered water with them. When the supply becomes exhausted, 
They have only to put a few kernels of apricots, or almonds, chopped small into a vessel of Nile water, to render it tolerably clear within the space of five or six hours. I learnt this art from an Arab woman during my voyage on the Nile. The population of the region around the Nile must be very considerable, for the villages almost adjoin each other. The ground consists everywhere of sand, and only becomes fruitful through the mud which the Nile leaves behind after its inundation. Thus the luxuriant vegetation here only commences after the waters of the Nile have retired. The villages cannot be called handsome, as the houses are mostly built of earth and clay, or of bricks made of the Nile mud. Man, the crown of creation, does not appear to advantage here. The poverty, the want of cleanliness, and rude, savage state of the people cannot be witnessed without a feeling of painful emotion. The dress of the women consists of the usual long blue garment, and the men wear nothing but a shirt reaching to the knee. Some of the women veil their faces, but others do not. I was astonished at the difference between the fine, strongly built men and the ugly, disgusting women and neglected children. In general, the latter present a most lamentable appearance, with faces covered with scabs and sores, on which a quantity of flies are continually settling. Frequently, also, they have inflamed eyes. In spite of the oppressive heat, I remained nearly the whole day seated on the roof of my cabin, enjoying the landscape and gazing at the moving panorama to my heart's content. The company on board could be called good or bad, bad because there was not a soul present to whom I could impart my feelings and sentiments on the marvels of nature around me, good because all, but particularly the Arab women who occupied the little cabin in the forepart of the vessel, were very good-natured and attentive to me. They wished me to accept a share of everything they possessed, and gave me a portion of each of their dishes, which generally consisted either of pilau, beans, or cucumbers, and which I did not find palatable. When they drank coffee in the morning, the first cup was always handed to me. In return I gave them some of my provisions, all of which they liked, excepting the coffee, which had milk in it. When we landed at a village, the inhabitants would inquire by signs if I wished for anything. I wanted some milk, eggs, and bread, but did not know how to ask for them in Arabic. I therefore had recourse to drawing, for instance. I made a portrait of a cow, gave an Arab woman a bottle and some money, and made signs to her to milk the cow and fill my bottle. In the same way I drew a hen, and some eggs beside her, pointed to the hen with a shake of my head, and then to the eggs with a nod, counting on the woman's fingers how many she was to bring me. In this way I could always manage to get on, by limiting my wants to such objects as I could represent by drawings. When they brought me the milk, and I explained to the Arab woman by signs that, after she had finished cooking, I wished to have the use of the fire to prepare my milk and eggs, she immediately took off her pot from the fire, and compelled me, in spite of all remonstrances, to cook my dinner first. If I walked forward towards the prow to obtain a better view of the landscape, the best place was immediately vacated on my behalf, and in short they all behaved in such a courteous and obliging way that these uncultivated people might have put to shame many a civilized European. They certainly, however, requested a few favors of me, which, I am ashamed to say, it cost me a great effort to grant. For instance, the oldest among them begged permission to sleep in my apartment, as they only possessed a small cabin, while I had the larger one all to myself. Then they performed their devotions, even to the preliminary washing of face and feet, in my cabin. This I permitted, as I was more on deck than below. 
At first these women called me Mary, imagining, probably, that every Christian lady must bear the name of the Virgin. I told them my baptismal name, which they accurately remembered. They told me theirs in return, which I very soon forgot. I mention this trifling circumstance because I afterwards was frequently surprised at the retentive memory of these people, during my journey through the desert towards the Red Sea. August 21st. Although I felt solitary among all the voyagers on the bark, these two days passed swiftly and agreeably away. The flatter the land grew, the broader did the lordly river become. The villages increased in size, and the huts, mostly resembling a sugar-loaf, with a number of doves roosting on its apex, wore an appearance of greater comfort. Mosques and large country houses presently appeared, and in short, the nearer we approached towards Cairo, the more distinct became these indications of affluence. The sand-hills appeared less frequently, though on the route between Atfe and Cairo I still saw five or six large, barren places which had quite the look of deserts. Once the wind blew directly towards us from one of these burning wastes with such an oppressive influence that I could easily imagine how dreadful the hot winds, Chamsir, must be, and I no longer wondered at the continual instances of blindness among the poor inhabitants of these regions. The heat is unendurable, and the fine dust and heated particles of sand which are carried into the air by these winds cannot fail to cause inflammation of the eyes. Little towers of masonry, on the tops of which telegraphs have been fixed, are seen at intervals along the road between Alexandria and Cairo. Our vessel was unfortunate enough to strike several times on stand-banks, besides getting entangled among the shallows, a circumstance of frequent occurrence during the time that the Nile is rising. On these occasions I could not sufficiently admire the strength, agility, and hard-working perseverance of our sailors, who were obliged to jump overboard and push off the ship with poles, and afterwards were repeatedly compelled to drag it for half an hour together through shallow places. These people are also very expert at climbing. They could ascend without ratlines to the very tops of the slanting masts, and take in or unloose the sails. I could not repress a shudder on seeing these poor creatures hanging betwixt earth and heaven, so far above me that they appeared like dwarves. They work with one hand, while they cling to the mast with the other. I do not think that a better, or more active, agile, and temperate race of sailors exists than these. Their fare consists of bread or ship-biscuit in the morning, with sometimes a raw cucumber, a piece of cheese, or a handful of dates in addition. For dinner they have the same diet, and for supper they have a dish of warm beans, or a kind of broth or pilau. Roast mutton is a rare delicacy with them, and their drink is nothing but Nile water. During the period of the inundation the river is twice as full of vessels as at other times. When the river is swollen, the only method of communication is by boats. On the last day of this expedition a most beauteous spectacle awaited me, the Delta. Here the mighty Nile, which irrigates the whole country with the hundreds of canals cut from its banks through every region, divides itself into two principal branches, one of which falls into the sea at Rosetta, and the other at Damietta. If the separate arms of the river could be compared to seas, how much more does its united vastness merit the appellation? When I was thus carried away by the beauty and grandeur of nature, when I thus saw myself placed in the midst of a new and interesting scenes, it would appear to me incredible how people can exist, 
possessing in abundance the gifts of riches, health, and leisure time, and yet without a taste for travelling. The petty comforts of life and enjoyments of luxury are indeed worth more in the eyes of some than the opportunity of contemplating the exalted beauties of nature, or the monuments of history, and of gaining information concerning the manners and customs of foreign nations. Although I was at times very badly situated, and had to encounter more hardships and disagreeables than fall to the lot of many a man, I would be thankful that I had had resolution given me to continue my wanderings whenever one of these grand spectacles opened itself before me. What, indeed, are the entertainments of a large town compared to the delta of the Nile, and many similar scenes? The pure and perfect enjoyment afforded by the contemplation of the beauty of nature is not for a moment to be found in the ballroom or the theatre, and all the ease and luxury in the world should not buy from me my recollections of this journey. Not far from the delta we can behold the Libyan desert, of which we afterwards never entirely lose sight, though we sometimes approach and sometimes recede from it. I became conscious of certain dark objects in the far distance. They developed themselves more and more, and at length I recognize in them the wonder-buildings of ancient times, the pyramids. Far behind them rises the chain of mountains, or rather hills, the Makatam. Evening was closing in when we at length arrived at Baluk, the harbour of Cairo. If we could have landed at once, I might, perhaps, have reached the town itself this evening. As the harbour is, however, always overcrowded with vessels, the captain is often compelled to wait for an hour before he can find a place to moor his craft. By the time I could disembark, it had already grown quite dark, and the town gates were shut. I was thus obliged to pass the night on board. The journey from Atfe to Cairo had occupied two days and a half. This passage had been one of the most interesting, although the heat became more and more oppressive, and the burning winds of the desert were sometimes wafted over to us. The highest temperature at midday was thirty-six degrees, and in the shade from twenty-four degrees to twenty-five degrees reamer. The sky was far less beautiful and clear than in Syria. It was here frequently overcast with white clouds. End of section 28